the broken clock podcast cat cats cast cats i have a lot of cats the broken clock podcast what would a podcat be a lot of purring and meowing i guess yes. anyway we are continuing our uh series on the stoic virtues and today mouse and i are talking about justice now this is another one of those ones where i'm sure i am going to get many many people going that's not what justice means this is the stoic definition of justice not whatever your postmodern liberal arts college said justice was unfortunately we've i think we've talked about this before on this podcast mouse that um we live in an age that believes justice is divisible that mm -hmm. there are different kinds of justice there is social justice and environmental justice and economic justice and you know what the the legal system or criminal justice some people won't even call that justice but um the the stoics uh, the, the the greeks in general but definitely the stoics and and um they they compare this sort of thing to um medieval chivalry but i i don't see it as the same thing at all because the stoics were actually creating these concepts for the for the world them and the the um the the jews putting down the torah back uh, six thousand years ago they were actually coming up with these ideas of what justice was and if you had walked up to uh marcus aurelius or epictetus and or anybody like that and and said justice was divisible they would have basically said you know get out of my salon mm -hmm. um the the idea that there can be different kinds of right and different kinds of wrong different kinds of righteousness would would make an ancient greek scholar tilt his head would it not <laughs> yes yeah and i mean okay the greeks were not what we consider letter perfect on rights but you know it was it's interesting because they sort of get a self um they get a bit of it uh, of a of a hall pass on that because the whole idea of stoic virtue is accept things for what they are try for better right and so yeah. they were acknowledging the society was not perfect um yeah, yeah. you actually it's interesting because because the closest thing i had the closest version of that concept of justice that i have found among any other uh philosophers um even contemporary because everybody has their own every philosopher this is one of the things that anyone who studies philosophy or tries to dip their um toe into justice mm -hmm. uh into sorry into the philosophy will find out that uh, a good chunk of philosophers like to redefine language yes um, and create their own version of uh, uh definitions uh -huh. um, <laughs> but uh -huh. the closest thing to the stoic interpretation is uh funny enough ayn rand take a hit um, yeah in um for example she said um justice is a recognition of the fact that you can't fake the character of men as you cannot fake the character of nature and you have to judge all men as conscientiously as you judge inanimate objects with the same respect for truth with the same vision and as pure and as rational process of identification that every man must be judged for what he is and treated accordingly that just 
as you do not pay a higher price for a rusty chunk of scrap than for a piece of shining metal. You do not value a rotter above a hero. That your moral appraisal is the coin paying people for their virtues or vices. So oh, it's basically- Lord. It would she be spinning <laughs> in a grave right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lord. Lord. I mean, that's, that's sort of what what we're what we're struggling with right now right is it does seem that a lot of people get rewarded for certain kinds of bad behavior oh yeah and people have a lot of uh theories about why but to me it's this you're not better than me attitude that people like to People uh, upwardly social comparing oneself can make you feel not so good. Mm-hmm. And it just seems that people try to avoid that by only consuming entertainment with people that aren't better in them, you know? And I not- would explain why goddamn Dexter is coming back. Well, yeah, I always found that show strange. Like my husband and I both have this this revulsion for for that show because ah, it really is just taking the absolute worst that the person can be and sort of going well no they could be a good guy if no he's a serial killer yeah he still kills people he still even if he kills even if he kills another killer you know right throughout the episodes he still kills innocent people because he has to get it off his chest right Right. And it, it's like, no, that does not excuse it. The, the fact that he will kill another serial killer towards the end of that episode does not justify the fact that he still murders innocent people. So yeah. why is this, you know, why is this character being made a hero? He's not. But it, it's the same with shows like Breaking Bad and yeah. The Sopranos. And, you know, I, I was always a bit disturbed by um, describing the the producers describing breaking bad as the story of walter white becoming a badass you know i never found walter white to be a badass i found walter white to be sort of the to paraphrase jack kerouac the thief hiding at the heart of every mild-mannered american right Mm -hmm. It, it you know when people are given a choice they will as uh, see i always like the pinkman character in breaking bad better than walter white i liked pretty much every character in breaking bad better than walter white but uh uh pinkman who was his his you know this low level street dealer who becomes his his uh sous chef so -hmm. to speak he basically described meth as selling poison to people who don't care right and um that that selling poison to people who don't care seems to be basically where we are in modern discourse mm-hmm. is some group the the purpose of rhetoric now the purpose of discourse is not to seek truth and develop it the pers- the, the purpose of discourse now is to get people to believe a particular convenient thing Mm -hmm. and that particular convenient thing can be you know anything from buy this product that you don't at all need but your friends will somehow think you're cool um i'm i'm um calling out you everybody on their fourth apple watch 
um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, or things like the attitudes of 20 somethings toward COVID-19 vaccines, you know, that became mm -hmm. a real problem. And yeah. I think that, I think a lot of people spreading this stuff, um, are, uh, they don't intend to do anything malicious or nefarious. And, and this is where, you know, this, this stoic idea of justice, it comes in and it is kind of forgiving and in a very, you know, Randian sort of way of you don't get a pass under the stoics for a well-meaning um, mistake like that. Uh, because you're supposed to see the world as it is and act accordingly. Yeah, because an act of evasion is still an act of evasion. You choose to evade reality. Right. You cannot right. escape reality. You cannot, you, you cannot escape the consequences of trying to escape reality. Yeah. Which yeah, is where having to be responsible for the things that you do comes in. But so many people do try to escape reality. I, I find this, this is a, a, a frequent, something that baffles me is when I see people who are just, oh, don't think about it. You know, just, just better, better to put it out of your head. And I, I don't, under, I've always been one of those people who was comforted by what are the facts? What do we do about them? Right. There's a difference between I'm not going to think about this right now because I am in a very bad spot and, right. you know, thinking about this is going to increase my anxiety. It's going to make me feel bad. I'm going to feel depressed. I will not be able to do anything. I will put this aside and think about this when I'm in a better spot. And the difference with, with I'm not going to think about it at all because it's unpleasant. Yeah, it just seems to me like there are a whole bunch of people in that. I think that living in the latter category, I'm not going to think about it because it's unpleasant, mm -hmm. puts a lot of people eventually into the former category of not being able to handle any, um, any struggle because it makes them incredibly depressed. Yeah. Uh, Betty Friedan actually talked to the, in the feminine mystique about, you know, women in, in, in her, in her time, being taught that the minute something becomes unpleasant, the minute you start feeling anxiety, you're supposed to stop. That's bad. Mm. Whereas men, you know, toughen up, keep calm and carry on right now. Right. The two extremes both have their problems. But her point was that learning the educational process, being exposed to new ideas and information is inherently stressful. Mm. And if you're taught to just run away or shut down whenever anything becomes foreign, anything becomes novel, or you know, or uncomfortable. Um, you're not, you're not going to learn. You're not going to better yourself. You're not going to mature and improve. Uh, and it, it does like you hear the language that's used uh, you know, there's this idea of a creeper, you know, so I, I, I hear guys complaining about this online all the time, uh, but that, 
you know, some girl, they tried to talk to them and all that stuff. And, and they were just as dismissed as a creeper or being creepy. And the justification for that was he made me uncomfortable. And the truth is that, yes, women, unfortunately, are trained to be uncomfortable when some random person comes up and starts talking to them because, you know, the you have to hide away so you don't get raped is trained into us in a, in a very um, young age. But I always, you know, I always wondered, did, did the person actually do anything or was the sheer type of interaction what was quote unquote creepy mm -hmm. and if so you know how, how does someone live that way like sometimes yeah you get a vibe off of someone like yeah this guy's actively creepy stares too long or um you know just seems not not having the best intentions but that's uh, or, or afterwards you get the you get, you get the whole, but I'm a nice guy. F you, you stuck up, you know. Well, okay, that's beyond creepy. That's just an <laughs> asshole, right? Like that's that's tangible, right? A guy simply being awkward and nervous is not creepy. Right. Right. And let's let's go easier on as as long as as long as we still have this gendered social stuff where in heterosexual couplings the man must approach the woman for all these different reasons um let's let's go easier on guys maybe because uh, the approach is not is not the easiest thing in the world um you know as somebody who just establishes contact with people for parts of my job it can get exhausting sometimes i i can just not want to do it sometimes heck uh, even on the gay in the gay side of like I, I had the hardest time approaching guys I, I liked. It's, it's a hard thing to do, right? Kind of is because it's, it's a uh, opening yourself up to rejection. Right. Or disappointment in finding out that, <laughs> that the guy was pretty, but that's about it. But so, yeah. Yeah. Or, but, or that he's straight and he's actually right. just. Just like he just likes going to gay clubs for yeah that's that's his that gay extra, friends are there yeah that that's actually that happened. extra that, thing yeah that actually happened to me in college went to this gay bar um with a couple of friends and there was this really cute guy and he was super smart we we, were we, we danced all night and I thought mm -hmm. oh you know I, I think there's you know potential connection I'll get his number well I I asked him you know you know would you like to have a cup of coffee tomorrow mm -hmm. and he said well I have to tell you I'm straight and like what yeah huh that's mixed signals i know <laughs> to this day i wonder if he really was straight or if he was either giving me the slip or he was in denial because that happens a lot too well that could be but you know either way he mm -hmm. gave you a reason there's no real yep. reason to totally doubt it right yeah. um it's funny because similarly i was watching an episode of the golden girls last night <laughs> and Blanche, you know, the resident femme fatale, ended up going on a date with her jazzercise instructor. Who oh, gosh. Half her age, right? And Derek. Derek, yes. And of course, it's, it's frightening that I know exactly the character's name. There, there's <laughs> nothing to Derek. And the great thing about the episode is you watch her increasingly. <laughs> 
find the guy less and less attractive because mm-hmm. he's so shallow. You know, he only he only reads Arnold Schwarzenegger's um, uh, autobiography. Iron. Yeah, and only watches that movie. And then, of course, it becomes the thing where he wants to spend time with her because she reminds him of her, of his mother. But <laughs> she was not interested before that. Before he, that. And, and afterwards, she just felt uh, humiliated. Right. Because and, and I mean, it's like, why, you know, the, the, they didn't unpack the, all the reasons for the humiliation, but um, it, it was a sitcom. They only had so much time. But there, there is that, um, and, and that's, I mean, that's a small example of how seeing the world for how it is changes your idea of what's just. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the, the stoic example of righteousness or justice, um, it, it, it isn't the same as what most people think of as justice, because of what most people think of as justice is actually revenge. Yeah, retribution. Yeah, retribution or, or you wronged me. So now I get to wrong you. Um, you know, there I saw an article where we're blessedly by the time this podcast airs, the Canadian election will be over um, because I've just been so put off by the whole practice this time around and there's there's been a lot of what i consider unjust behavior Mm -hmm. uh going on like attacking trudeau for being a feminist because he got into a fight with three women once you know a candidate is found to have been charged and then the charges were dropped with a sexual assault charge and jagmeet singh goes and attacks trudeau's feminism Trudeau had nothing to do with that. Not knowing something doesn't. And then, you know, they they look into it. They kick the guy out as a candidate. I'm not sure if that was even fair because maybe he actually didn't do it. You know, the charges were dropped. Charges get dropped for a bunch of reasons, right? right. We don't know. Um, the one thing that was unfortunate is he was in the Naval Reserves and didn't report it to his superior officers, which is a no-no. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jugmeet Singh's like, didn't act fast enough, not a real feminist, not, you know, and I'm like, come on to me who I do identify as a feminist. I want a guy to get some due process, please. I I don't want people being thrown out by just an accusation because you know what? Sometimes there's mistaken identity. Sometimes people do lie, especially in politics. You know, they do I mean, there was a a very high profile case with a guy named Patrick Brown, who was, I believe, running for the the provincial conservatives. And they they manufactured this whole sexual harassment thing um, Mm -hmm. with him. He had to resign as party leader. The story promptly fell apart. If the media had taken a few more weeks to really look into it, it they would have found that the story had pretty major holes in it. And I mean, Patrick Brown's now mayor of Mississauga, but that doesn't make what they did right. Just right. Cause, just because he ended up OK does not mean no harm, no foul. And this is where we get into the types of 
um, the types of judging whether something is just and the Stoics sort of did a an interesting blend of deontology and consequentialism. They they didn't see see the need to split the two completely. They were like, sometimes, yes, the outcomes matter. Other times, no, it doesn't matter how it came out. What you did was wrong. Yeah. You know, they don't they don't feel the need to to split down the middle. And that makes me wonder if philosophy might have we we might be dealing with too many false binaries in, in philosophy right now. It's actually getting in the way of figuring out what the right thing is to do to do, you know, because. Well, because, you know, when you look at the, the tenets, you could say uh, the unspoken tenets of, I'm spoken many times too, of what the Stoics considered justice, what, what the parameters for action within justice. Right. The first thing is, you know, you will harm, you will never, you will not harm others. Yeah. Um, and um, you will think of others, not just of yourself, because the consequences of your actions have potential repercussions right. upon other people, um, and you know, being being steadfast and being steadfast and truthful. Right. Um, all of that does include. All of that encompasses. You need to stand by your actions, and by that I mean you need to either go, yeah, I I did this, I screwed up, I yep. hurt people, I need to make amends, uh, or you know, in the case of the people who voted, say, to have Donald Trump impeached mm -hmm. in his own party, tiny as they were. Yeah, uh, all six of a them. number, all yeah. six of them. You know, I, I, I made this choice. It was the right choice. I will not allow you to drag me into running with the crowd because this is the right thing to do. Yeah, and now they're all getting primaried, but yeah. we'll see. I mean, Gavin Newsom survived his California recall. So at least there's some sanity in there's some sanity. In, oh, my God. California is the same part of the U.S. <laughs> Lord, take the wheel. <laughs> oh, um, but yeah, it, it's a. And, and I mean, obviously, the Stoics weren't weren't absolutists about a lot of stuff. Like you look at their biographies and, and they, they clearly used justice guidelines as guidelines, not, you know, the be all and the end all. I mean, Marcus Aurelius ruled over a state of near constant war warfare. So mm -hmm. not harming others wasn't exactly an option for him. You know, that yeah. was just the reality of the time. And you know, that that's one of those things. It's a very contentious um, school of ethics, the idea of a just war. Y you know, anti-war activists don't believe in the in the concept. And right. and, you, and you have to see the mess, the mess that Marcus Aurelius uh, inherited. Oh, it was um, awful. It was awful. There there are at times, even when you're emperor, there's just no way to stop a war. That's right. Uh, and. So at that point, you have to look and see, well, what did he do that was within his power? Well, I mean, he had the Antonine Plague also, 15 right. years. Yeah. Uh, he lost family. He lost children to it. Um, and it's interesting because as an emperor, he was pretty much one of a kind. Uh, he did not dress 
in fancy clothes. He tried to remain as simple as possible, mm -hmm. um, whereas most other emperors just reveled in excess. Um, but what he did, he tried to ameliorate as much as he could within his, you know, his, there, there were no vaccines back then. Right. Uh, what the empire could do for its citizens. And when the coffers ran dry, he sold his own uh, possessions mm -hmm. to add funds to uh, the relief of the victims of the plague. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he really did it, not the way Trump suggested he did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, that's the sort of thing that you do the best you can with what you have. Pretty and that, much. that to me is, is the linchpin of being aware of, of the world, being aware of what reality is. And, and uh, there, there is a requirement in the Stoics to strive for better to an extent uh, to your own, you know, personal risk, but it, it's not, it's not quite altruism. No. which is is interesting it's not i have to suffer for an act to be good it is a belief in the common good and making the world better for everyone means making the world better for yourself this is only logical um and that again seems to have been lost the idea of a greater good well, the problem is that the notion of, I would not call it the greater good, I would call it general good. Yes, that's a better way of doing it. The greater good has been co-opted by authoritarians. Of course. Into, you know, you must do what we tell you to do because we know what's the better good, what is best for all of you. Um, whereas when I talk about, when I think about it as the general good is, what do, what repercussions what effects do your actions have upon the lives of other people? Mm -hmm. If what you're doing isn't hurting anyone, you know, then you can, no, then you have the question, well, is it hurting yourself? Well, if you decide you want to hurt yourself, yeah. that's your prerogative. You know, that yeah. is your prerogative. Uh, you know, that's where, you know, moral philosophy comes in and they say, we know that is, you know, hurting yourself is not good for yourself. You're, you know, you're, essentially putting your life and your, you know, your, your, um, your well-being at risk in the long term, which mm -hmm. will make it so that you will not have the life that you want. Okay, that is an argument that you have, you get to have with yourself. But when you bring others into the equation, that goes out the window. Right. When you start hurting other people through action or inaction. Yes. Um, because Marcus Aurelius he had a pretty brilliant quote about that he said oftentimes wrongdoers are not people who have done something but who have left something undone mm -hmm. yeah and that is i think it's very topical right now. oh oh i do i read i read an article yesterday about the youth vote and how racialized canadians feel left out in in this election now I know a lot of Americans listen to this, so you guys might not be aware of the, the, the big three voting things with this. One is obviously COVID response and, and further COVID relief. 
another surprisingly turned out to be not surprisingly in the rear view, but none of the, you know, talking heads were talking about it before the election was called uh, housing affordability, Mm -hmm. especially in cities. And then general things like health care, pharma care, national daycare, a national daycare strategy, all these things. And yet these 25 year old blessed, blessed beings uh, insisted that politicians weren't talking about issues that affected racialized people because they weren't talking about systemic racism. It's like housing affordability has an element of of systemic racism, honey. Um, The lack of a daycare, systemic racism, honey. Like it's right there. They just didn't slap a label on it. So you didn't see it. And for people who don't know that um, people who aren't white in Canada are more likely to be immigrants to Canada. Therefore, they don't have extended family here. Therefore, affordable, available daycare spaces that are safe and clean and all that stuff, well, that benefits them greatly, right? Affordable housing is is obviously... um, is obviously a thing to newcomers to the country or, or even, you know, um, even intergenerational poverty. These issues are being dealt with through these other issues. But this blessed, blessed 25-year-old said, you know, they say young people don't vote, but I don't see them out here making me vote. I don't see them out there making me interested in voting. And I'm like, well... You just pretty much indicated to the other parties that they don't mm-hmm. have to worry about you. There's a reason that people don't that the the party any party with an actual chance of winning winning doesn't court the youth vote because that's it. You have to be bribed to vote. If you're not told exactly what you want to hear, if it isn't completely targeted just to you with the exact words that you want you 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 know keep playing nintendo switch and order doordash that night you don't go out and vote Uh and i read this and i i was never that i i was a nerd i was more excited to turn 18 and be able to vote than to turn 16 and be able to learn to drive i i always thought voting was voting was a big part of what made you an adult it was a big rite of passage and I don't even know how to relate to these people who are who need to be persuaded to vote. Now, we've talked before about voting shouldn't be mandatory. You shouldn't be voting for lesser of evils. You should be voting for greatest of goods and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. But that is possible, especially in Canada, when you've got six blinking choices of party. And a bunch of local candidates that you don't have to vote for. You don't have to vote for the prime minister. Just find a local candidate you like and vote for them. Oh, but that involves work, right? And this is a person, (laughs) listening to them speak, this is a person who is using the language of racial and social justice to be lazy. You know? Like, if they don't make a choice, they're not responsible for who gets elected, they can continue to just complain about whoever's in power, that doesn't actually improve the general good. Mm -hmm. 
it it makes people more afraid of offering an opinion because they'll just get screamed out. But that is pretty much the world we live in right now. Uh, my gener our generation, Gen X, is the one associated with apathy. But I these these you know Gen Zers they they seem to have refined the concept of apathy. They make it seem like caring very much, but quite frankly, if you don't care about enough, care enough about an issue to read a couple of online articles, take a which party's platform do you are you closest to quiz on the Internet and spend 20 minutes dropping a ballot in a box. How much do you really care about making the world better? Yes, I, I misheard you for a second. And I thought you said which party, you know, I'd, I'd be part of a which party. Um, yeah, well, there could be jokes about which one that is here. Uh, but uh, yeah, they've, they've certainly, Amity Paul's own party in the Greens has tried to burn her at the stake a few times this election cycle, but that, that's, that's a story for another time. But yeah, it, I think the thing about the Stoics that is so important for today is that justice is active. Justice isn't just saying the right things. It's not just thinking the right thoughts. It's actually doing the right deeds. And it's and not separable. It's you not separable. You can't divide it into, you know, social justice, economic justice, musical justice. Justice is justice, period. It is the application to yeah. a specific sphere that you might want to focus on. And that's, you know, that's certainly fine. But when you create separate terms, um, right. you run the, you run the, you run the danger of creating a hot house definition, a hot house version of a virtue that is ultimately ineffectual. Well, right. That's the thing. I mean, people, people subdivided social justice and criminal justice because they don't believe the criminal justice system is just, and unfortunately too many of these, these dichotomies in in the field of of justice advocacy you know the social justice side will be interested in mass incarceration but the criminal justice side will be interested in in increasing crime i mean that's a big issue facing the us right now yeah but the truth is that the just solution deals with both how do you get crime down without locking up such a high percentage of a particular population that it starts to become an intergenerational problem. Mm -hmm. That's the just solution. It's not one or the other. And maybe it has nothing to do with the punishment element of crime. Maybe there's a way to reduce the reasons the crime starts to begin with, like economic desperation. And when you separate these two concepts of justice, it actually weakens the ability to do that. It doesn't strengthen it. I mean, the, the Voting Rights Act in the, in the U.S., the, the way that's just meandered through and hasn't, you know, hey, maybe there'll be a vote on it by the time this airs, but I don't think so. Um, the fact that there are so many hardliners in so many different compass points of this thing, uh, you know, the, the, the complete straw man of voter fraud to to begin with that's always mm -hmm. been that's always been stuff and nonsense that the the amount of fraud has never been uh significant, large, significant enough in a national election in local things 
yeah, in, in days gone by. But voter fraud's a red herring. Voter fraud is just something people say as a hypothetical that they have to be vigilant against. It's, it's not actually a pressing concern. Mm-hmm. But it's trying, it's trying to manipulate, it's trying to take a right versus wrong issue. Basically, the, the right to vote is good. Restricting people's right to vote is bad. They're trying to turn it into a right versus wrong from a right versus wrong decision making paradigm into a right versus right. Right. Like, yes, it's bad to restrict people's right to vote, but fraud is bad, too. You know, it, it, it's completely it, it's creating an argument that isn't real so that well, they can do nothing. It's creating well, I wouldn't say not. not well, they're they're rolling just, back, actively rolling back, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's an age old that is an age old trick, where yeah. you where you pretend that um, that in order to protect a right, you have to restrict it. Right. Whereby yeah. you 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 <clears throat> it's this it's one of the oldest one of the oldest sophistries in in the world. Where you, where you say, well, you know, you, you can't have too much of this um, because then this will happen. And the, the unfortunate thing about that is sometimes that generalization is true, right? You can have one piece of chocolate cake. You shouldn't eat the whole one. You're probably going to get sick. But it's not always applicable. Right. And it's not about banning chocolate cake. Right. Exactly. Or it's not about you know, it's not about allowing people to walk into a public building with a contagious disease because my freedom, mm-hmm. you know, well, that, the- that is that is a complete misunderstanding of freedom because yes. you you have you have body autonomy, which is one of the things that they love to talk about. It's funny because you have body autonomy, but if you're a pregnant woman, you don't. Uh, yeah, but- well, they they use the language of, of abortion rights where it doesn't belong right so that so they talk about you know have body autonomy but yes you do have body autonomy just like you have you know autonomy of movement when you are driving around in your car however if you happen to drive around in your car and drive it into a goddamn fucking storefront right then you have used your body uh, your, your body and movement autonomy in order to cause harm unto other people that right. is the same principle that applies if you're carrying a highly dangerous contagious disease. We're not talking about a flu that has had its back broken uh, by you know long generations of right. immunity, and we're talking about a novel virus. You know what yeah. novel means? It doesn't mean it doesn't it doesn't mean it was written by Danielle Steele. It means <laughs> it is fucking new. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, has, well, it still has its teeth on it. Well, it's also America's had no shirt, no shoes, no service rules for ages. Oh, I know. The vaccine is just a form of shirt. You know, there's there's no there's no harm to anybody else if somebody walks in with no shirt or no shoes. It's just not pleasant for the mm. other people. Right. And, and that's that's the thing when you when you approach justice, when you approach fairness, when you approach freedom, because these are all obviously interconnected concepts, um, when you approach it with this floating abstraction, disconnected memes mentality, 
you act, you actually end up not creating more freedom. You not not creating more justice. You actually make the world less just. Yeah, you well you you don't just restrict it. You actively are doing something unjust. Mm -hmm. It is unjust in to get other people sick in service of your own arrogance. It is unjust to be part of a system that is exhausting doctors and more so nurses uh, because you were just too damn arrogant to book two medical appointments that took you maybe a half hour each. Mm -hmm. That's not justice. That's not just, and you know, that's not, what about their freedom? What about their freedom from overwork? What about their freedom from exhaustion? That's not giving a damn about them. And then, you know, their justification is, well, I don't believe it's real. Well, that's nice. That's not fact. I mean, the Stoics would mop the floor with these guys. Now, granted, these guys would be, you know, as you said, part of the sophist school that would just talk themselves in circles. Yes. And I mean, I, the, the big. The big problems I'm seeing now in terms of critical thought are, as you said, a lot of sophistry. But a lot of solipsism. There's a lot of solipsism oh, yes. walking oh, yes. around spewing tautologies. Far too many people think they're the only thing that exists on this planet. The only thing that is that they're that is worth paying attention to. Yeah. And I think some people think, well, how can it possibly be that somebody can actually believe that they're the only thing that truly exists? And it's more common than that a lot of people think we had a president who certainly believes that that is the, the, the that is the root of narcissism yeah i mean a lot of people think well they'll agree that he's the only thing that matters but not the only thing that exists but i i really do believe that trump is an example of someone who everyone else exists only to serve him, mm -hmm. meaning he is the only sort of prime organism. Everybody else is some sort of parasite on that host. Yeah. And people are better off when they realize that, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if he wasn't the only person who truly existed, he'd have to have a shred of empathy for the people <laughs> that do things for him and then get screwed over, but he doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, and, but a lot of people, think that's that's the right way to go about life you know and that that was sort of how ayn rand got caricatured that that's what she believed but that that wasn't that wasn't her philosophy you know a lot a lot of people use that the you know the mr a comic that oh, everybody God. uses as as oh, this is God. what objectivism really is yes it, it wasn't created by any of Ayn Rand or direct disciples. It was created by a comic book artist who was a brilliant, brilliant artist named Steve Ditko. But this particular thing, uh, it's a crime style. Mr. A is the character that Rorschach and Watchmen was We're based parody. on. Yeah. yeah, Alan Moore was deconstructing this particular character to show what a character like that would actually do in the real world. And it's interesting, the, the reaction to it. This is what Alan Moore, being the first principles writer of comic books, why his stuff works 
even even though he's a very very grumpy person um <laughs> who has a magic cave under his house i want a magic cave under my I house know. but we'll talk about that later i people bring up the magic cave i'm like you are not convincing me that alan moore is less cool well, I, didn't the- <laughs> say, I didn't say it was less cool i know, I know. other people have though they, they see me <laughs> grin when they say magic cave and they're like i have misjudges i'm like i want magic cave but, of course, I I love I love that the the impression. Um, I forget yes. who does it. War, he goes, uh, I, oh God, what was his name? I can see his face now. Warren Ellis. Warren Ellis, I think, when yeah. he goes, I have a magic cave under my house. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't mean, sell my house anymore. Apparently, yeah. people don't want magic caves under their houses, and I'm going, who are these people? I'd buy yeah, a, ca- I, a house I, with a cave under the house. I buy a magic cave. I'm I buy just the cave. That's cool, yeah. man. <laughs> Like, all you have to put a giant penny in there and it's the bat cave. And exactly. th- there you go. You change the abstraction with one detail and all of a sudden yeah. <laughs> it's not something people make fun of. But, uh, you know, there was a scene in a Mr. A comic where there's a bank robber and he's hanging off the edge of the building. And normally the superhero thing is to save the bank robber and let him go to jail. And instead, Mr. A does this long winded speech about how you know, if he which wouldn't him, work because by the time he was over, the, the bank robber's fingers would have given out. Well, yes, uh, it, 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 the timing wouldn't have worked, but like brevity is the soul of wit. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Mr. A does this long speech about how if he lets him live, he is likely to just get a slap on the wrist and go out and rob other banks. So, you know, the just thing to do is to let him fall. And of course, then the robber falls to his death. His death. And of course, there's problems with that thought experiment, right? Because what if somebody's walking underneath there, you know, is letting someone die a greater transgression than robbing a bank? You're talking about stuff versus human life. But the, the point he was trying to make was that, you know, maybe not everybody deserves saving. There was a more nuanced way to make that case, right? Right. Unfortunately, Ditko is was not big in nuance. Um, I mean, the fact that he wasn't big in nuance is what allowed him to create such fantastic costume designs because he exactly. is in part responsible for Spider-Man's outfit, which is not nuanced at all. It says spider no. all over the fucking thing. No, I mean, <laughs> but it's also it's yeah. it's incredibly uh, it's incredibly recognizable. But my but, my favorite Steve Ditko thing is Doctor Strange. That yes. I mean, such innovative art. But come on, he took a white guy, gave him yellow peril characteristics because he's a magician and put him in, you know, what is it? Camortage, they're calling it now. Mm-hmm. It, it's like. There's so many problems with it. There's nothing nuanced about it at all. No. But. And the disco collar. And the disco collar. Yes. <laughs> they actually had to make sentient to keep. I know. I thought that, that was so ridiculous. <laughs> they had to give it its own personality to not have an excuse to get rid of it because, come on, he's wearing a vampire cape and Fu Manchu eyebrows. Yeah. Yeah. But. Uh, and it's totally a white guy going in and learning like what is it Nepalese mysticism in mm-hmm. a year he yeah. he just he he, tr- he he you know leapfrogs over all those other people who have been studying for years because he's a surgeon uh, and it's 
anyway, we digress. <laughs> um, you know, these, these are the sorts of things where too many people take very nuanced, complicated uh, philosophical systems that have no easy answers and want to make them into bullet point 250 word internet articles. Yeah, there's a, the, the, the biggest problem with the perception of objectivism, for example, is that Rand's main point is that you're not shackled to other people. Mm -hmm. And what she meant by that, if you look at, you know, the, 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 the progression of Howard Rourke's character in, say, Atlas Shrugged, mm -hmm. at the beginning of the book, he, you know, he is with a family who doesn't value him, who constantly puts him down. Uh, but begrudgingly accepts his money, mm -hmm. uh, who resent him, um, and he's staying with them because of what he considers to be his obligation, mm -hmm. social obligation to his family. And he constantly says, you know, they, they do love me, they just don't know how to express it. Mm -hmm. uh, they do love me, but they're, they're embarrassed that they have to depend on me. You know, he has all of these rationalizations, and at the end of the day, he eventually realizes that, no, his family is toxic and the right. only reason he stayed with them and the only reason he stayed with his wife uh, which is a pretty loveless marriage and she uh is also uh, someone who puts him down uh constantly and makes fun of uh, of the things that he makes you know he's an industrialist he, mm -hmm. he, he he creates this this new metal uh and so she puts it down constantly and says that you know only things like the arts uh, are important without realizing that one comes from the other. That right. you know, it's it's all part of the same uh, creative endeavor in humanity. But she's you know she's a she's a platonic character, so she has this mind this material world soul split. Right. Um, that's what Lily Lily Reardon uh, kind of represents. But so he has all of these these familial familial obligations that he sees, and he believes that he needs to be bound by them. Uh, and he feels dirty for wanting to have his own happiness, which is what his love affair with Dagny is. Because mm -hmm. in the novel, he finds this woman who is super intelligent, who is of his same, you know, the same mindset. She's interested in engineering. Uh, she, you know, she runs the railroad. Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at it, she's kind of pretty, pretty feminist character when you yeah. look at her. Uh, and she appreciates him for who he is for you know for his brilliance for the fact that he's principled and so yeah he, he ends up having an affair with her but he feels absolutely dirty and horrible because he feels he has these obligations to his family and the obligations to his wife um when if you look at it from the point of view the, of of rand's philosophy he is not obligated to his family because throughout his entire life they've done nothing but put him down they despise him yeah. And they have been incredibly toxic to him. Uh, if he had, you know, if he had grown up in a, in a family that loved him, that encouraged him. Yeah. You can say, you know, he does have right. this bond, this bond, this reciprocal bond. But right. in this case, it's not. And the reason Rand created Rourke's family as it is, is that they're kind of, one of the things that you need to, that people need to realize about Atlas Shrugged is that these are not meant to be realistic characters in that you will not find them exactly as, you know, as, as someone you would find in the street as in naturalist writing, writings. They're supposed to be these, these concentrated, um, are almost archetypal uh, characters. Um, so Rourke's family in its entirety is kind of this, this 
um, refinement, uh, this rarification of so many toxic family environments that Rand saw, both when she was growing up in Russia. Sadly, they're not far off. Yeah, some families that we, it, you know, the Rand's writing was criticized for being cartoonish, but you see it now. And I mean, she'd be making huge bank writing for the CW these days. I mean, if you looked at if you looked at um, James Taggart, um, a lot of people would say, well, no, he's he's not terribly believable you know, 20 yeah. years ago. But yeah. you look at Donald Trump and Donald yeah. Trump is almost Q by Q, James Taggart. Yeah. Um, but but her cute her her whole you know a good amount of that is you're not bound to other people against your will right you you know uh, people hold obligations social obligations familial obligations over your head um and that is not a way to live because you have to look at these bonds you have to go okay am i you know am i supposed to be supportive of my mother when my mother has was essentially an incredibly toxic person who destroyed my childhood, who you know who through, through this or that, you know, you have to look at it and go, no, I don't owe anything to her, because she yeah. did nothing for me. She was an incredibly self-absorbed human being. I, so why I should knew, I do that? I knew someone in um, well when we were applying to university, whose parents twisted her arm to basically. Uh, defraud the um, student debt. We have uh, something called, we, it was called OSAP at the mm-hmm. time. It was a government student loan program, but they basically set up this whole thing where she reported that she was living on her own so oh. that she got more money while she was still living at home. So basically the money went into the family. The parents were increasing their quality of life based on their daughter's student debt. Uh, Of course, who had to pay back that debt? She did. The daughter. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the sort of thing where if family obligations become too too primal, become, you know, you, you have to forsake everything else for family. That's that's the problems that arise is there are people who will will take advantage of that in pretty terrible ways. Yes. And so the so that's the, the issue that runs with with the perception of Rand is that people will tell you they will say, um, you know, she tells you to disregard everybody to uh, it's, you know, it's um, what is that that expression? Uh, it's every man well, for himself. Yeah. And that is a disfiguration of what Rand does. Ad- admittedly, Rand wa- had a very, very caustic way of communicating. She was not irate. You never saw her in her interviews, um, you know, jump into a rage fit. But right. she had, she spoke in very cutting terms. She spoke. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because people immediately look at her and go, oh, she's a bitch. Yeah. But. But if you erase that image of Rand and you put a man in there, yep. he would be, oh, he's decisive. Yep. He speaks his mind. Yep. He, doesn't, he doesn't suffer any fools. Yep. Um, so a good chunk of how Rand communicated was, and how she wrote was tinted by other people, by their perceptions mm-hmm. of gender, of what a woman 
should talk like, what a That's woman right. should behave like, what yeah. she, you know, how she sh sh should she speak. Uh, once you stop thinking, you know, the, a woman wrote this and women need to be nice, then you look at what she actually said. And a lot of people don't, can't make that distinction because they're not using justice to perceive the situation correctly. They're using a filter. Just like the whole point of Rand's, you know, you're not bound to other people against your will. And that is, and people always forget yeah. that she says against your will. Yeah. She, she says, do not accept obligations that you have not agreed to. Yes. And of, of course, I had people say, well, you know, what about people who have children then? Does that mean that you're not you're obligated to your children? No. By having that child, by keeping that That's child, right. you, accept, it. Yeah. You, you accept the obligation That's to right. raise that child, which That's is right. why abortion rights are important. Right. Because it's it has to justice. be a choice. It has to be a choice. Yeah. Um, so in, in, in the end, if you want to concretize Rand's philosophy, uh, you can even you can even say we we don't even need to talk about capitalism, um, because you know, Ayn Rand made the argument that capitalism, as practiced without uh, without statism, without cronyism, mm -hmm. which is when you have elements of the government coming in and deciding that they're going to play the field, and they're going to tell they're going to decide who are winners, who are losers, who can play, who can't play, which banks get the, the, mm -hmm. the, the bailout, et cetera, all of that. Uh, she says that capitalism has, as, as, a, as, a, as an economic system, has the greatest amount, uh, uh, the greatest potential to free people. And so if you want to encapsulate Rand's philosophy, it can go into two capsules. One of them is that reason is the means by which you can survive and thrive in the world. And the other one is that the ultimate goal is to free people, to free, she says man, but you know, to free the individual right. from others. And that doesn't yeah. mean I've got, a, you know, I, I'm going to walk into a building while being a potential carrier for a deadly disease. Right. Because when you're doing that, you're shackling other people to you. That, that's right. You're, you are, you are forcing them. You are deciding that those people aren't nearly as important, that their well-being isn't nearly as important as your desire to feel good. Yeah. Unfortunately, the world has a very authoritarian idea of it's not justice. Order has replaced justice mm -hmm. in our understanding. And that it's interesting because the people who scream the most about freedom are the ones that really very much want order. They want a social order that they recognize. They want, you know, they want financial essentially security. They want, they don't want the habits of their lives to change because they see that as disorder. And that's what they consider justice. Yeah. The truth is that justice is actually constant change as we move towards things that are more right. You know, we have to go back and retool things. And sometimes that process gets really messy before it, it sorts itself out. That's the reality of change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the fact that the Stoics identified that perpetual change of constantly trying to make the world better is, I think, important in in being okay with that change. You know, I, I talk a lot about 
back back in the 90s when a disease was killing people and you know gay people were getting blamed and it it really pushed um uh gay rights marriage equality things like that into something we kind of need to do something about this now people are dying um i remember there was a contingent of activists who who you know they were in the gay rights umbrella who believed that uh, same-sex marriage rights, marriage equality was actually evil. It was a, a, a forcing heteronormative social convention on gay people. And so they actually opposed same-sex marriage on the grounds of gay rights. Right. This always happens when mm-hmm. a new, when something new comes up. Right. People are freaking out about the pronoun debate right now. To me, that's no different than what we saw in the 90s with some people going, you know, maybe the whole institution of marriage is just bunk. Well, that isn't what prevailed. Right. The the thing that the majority of people wanted, the thing that make the most sense in terms of what rights a particular person has in in, you know, in your right, in your life, that, that, that was the thing that won the day. That's how intellectual discourse, that's how debates about ethics work. You stifle that debate because you're too afraid of it. And we never get that process. And it seems to me now too many, you know, black lives matter shutting down the pride parade in Toronto a while back. And they were rewarded for that. You know, people protesting, rioting in the Capitol and, you know, shutting things down and barring entrance to frickin hospitals. That's not protesting. That's stifling a debate. That's mm-hmm. trying to frighten people and and deny people the things they like and want to get your way. That is not persuading anybody that that's an authoritarian impulse. Yes. And oh my God, I criticized Black Lives Matter. I criticized one action by Black Lives Matter that I thought was wrong. You don't, you don't take out your displeasure at society on another marginalized group. You just, you don't, that's not just, you know, you can say you're mad about the organizers of the pride parade, all you want claiming it, you know, Uh, It uh, marginalizes people of color, but there's a time and a place to take that up and stopping people's parade. I, I don't, I didn't, I don't think that's just because what, what freedom did it give people? Nothing. They were fighting over seats on a board, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were fighting over they were fighting over spots in a particular power structure of a private entity that runs parades and a weekend where everybody runs around in rainbow colored stuff and does drugs and gets drunk. That's unfortunately what prides become, yeah. you know, and and when they do that, they take their eyes off the greater prize of voting rights, which is extremely important. Excessive police violence, which is extremely important, or even something as simple as schools that 
black people tend to go to don't have the same prestige as schools that white people tend to go to. That ain't right. Mm -hmm. You know, we shouldn't be hiring based on prestige. We should be hiring based on can you do the job? Do you have the requisite skills? And one of the things that companies should be looking for is diversity of background. Not, not so you can say, hey, we have this many black people working here. No, because you're getting a different way of looking at the world, yeah. you know, which is what the Greeks did when they adopted children that, hey, you're going to be emperor someday. What? Say what? You know, they, they got diversity of thought in that way just because they weren't super concerned about paternity. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know they had a very different idea of what family was. Like, hey, you seem good. You're gonna be my son. Excuse me. They adopted adults. You know. Yep. You'll do. <laughs> yeah, you're you're right. You're my son, huh? You're not a you're not a total idiot like Commodus. <laughs> right. Right. You know. Imagine if like Donald Donald Trump adopted someone competent. To, instead, <laughs> he just seems to get married again and again and again. But that's a really bad example because he doesn't have the judgment to find a Marcus Aurelius. Exactly. But but yeah, it I guess because we got we got to wrap up, but I, I do challenge people to really dig down and think about what justice is. You know, like like you said, Mouse, justice is not it, it's not severable. You can't separate one type of justice from another type of justice the minute you ignore one element your solution is no longer just mm -hmm. um I, the thing about justice is that it does take some forethought yes we have to make those split second decisions that we see in the the comic book movies all the time of someone is falling off a building but the villain is getting away what do i do yes but those <laughs> You know, those split second decisions are informed by a lifetime of Ma and Pa Kent uh, uh, anecdotes, you know, a lifetime of being brought up in a particular moral system. Superman actually is quite stoic. Yeah, we were talking about this yesterday. Yeah. Superman and Wonder Woman have this this pretty similar background in that although, you know, uh, Ma and Pa Kent's very very you know core approach you you would think it's not the same as you know the queen of the amazons raising her daughter but if you look at the lessons they both learned it's pretty similar yeah it's about service yeah yeah well i mean superman they really do get into that moderation right because he's not a character like batman that hides himself away in a cave with a giant penny right because for for some odd reason that makes that that leads to good choices right superman socializes but he's not out and partying right yes. he he doesn't give up the idea of a family um of you know superman is a character incredibly content with enough which is why he doesn't use his powers to enrich himself. It's just, we have enough, you know, we have a good middle-class lifestyle. That's all we need. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting in, in Superman and Lois, Lois is the one that's actually making money. Clark Kent doesn't have a job for the first season of the show. He's, he's coaching high school football. 
for a bit. I thought I thought that was very subtle, but quite cool. But, you know, he's just like, I'm, I'm good with enough. I'm good. You know, I, I can go and I can save the world. But I come home and my family and my wife, and my two boys or one boy or whatever, whatever continuity you want to deal with. That's enough for me. <laughs> my small town. That's enough for me. And that I mean, that knowing what enough is, is a huge part of stoicism in general and a huge part of stoic justice to begin with. And they're dealing more and more and more. And they, they deal with it with control. I don't want to lose control because they have to have those dramatic DC comics moments. Right. Well, of course. But what it really is, it's not control so much as moderation. You know, get a little bit annoyed. Don't get out of control angry. Mm-hmm. Want want to do, want the world to be better, but don't need it to be so immediately better that you have to take over the systems and you know rule with an iron fist. That sort of thing. Be be content with seeing changes that may seem small, but those small changes will be lasting. Yep. You know. And that's the thing a lot of people don't understand about how laws and government and all that stuff work. Anytime there's a sweeping sea change legislation, that thing is fought about for decades and things get taken out of it and things get added to it. And there's a, a lot, there's a lot of tumult. There's a lot of um, instability for a really long time. And we're, we're living in one of those ages right now. Cause I mean, let's face it, we've had some pretty major changes uh, in, in recent in recent memory regarding rights mm-hmm. and freedoms. And, and there are there are forces that are fighting back on it. But then, oh, there, you know, then there are other little things, little laws that get changed here and there that actually make quite a big difference for a lot of people. They're usually more on the municipal or, or you know, provincial state level, but they can make a big difference, positive or negative in the lives of a lot of people and there isn't that fighting all over it and everybody can be part of say a community garden in a food desert right right anybody can volunteer to work at an after school program anybody can just take the time once a week twice a week to check in on a friend and go hey are you okay this this is stoic justice this is what they were talking about Accepting the world for what it is, recognizing what you can and cannot do in, in, in it, do the things you can do. They don't have to be huge. There, 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 are a lot of, there are a lot of stoic quotes about small things, mm-hmm. you know, just, just doing things for the right reasons, doing things with thought, understanding why you're doing with your, what you're doing instead of just being, you know, totally at the mercy of your urges and passions but the stoics do say that a certain amount of that they actually um they actually talk about discipline and desire so the the stoics do not eliminate desire that i found very interesting you just you you have to you have to moderate it it. yeah you have to moderate it it's okay to want stuff just don't let that become don't let anything overwhelm you exactly don't let it be become your entire identity yeah. So I guess I guess that's a good place to stop. I mean, the, the stoic concept of justice is really difficult. You, you can read like a little 500 word article and think, yeah, I got this. And then you start reading more into it. It's like, whoa, this is a deep well.
but uh, yeah, hopefully people got a bit of a sense of how it's different. And uh, we'll we'll wrap. Should we wrap? Yeah, I, I sorry, I had to mute my um, headset for a second because I went into one of my sneeze chains. Oh no! Yeah, allergies are bad lately. Well, it even without allergies, I occasionally sneeze, but I will. My body decides that. My body is against moderation in sneezing. <laughs> believes that six or seven sneezes in a row is a good acceptable number that a person should sneeze. Oh boy! Oh well, maybe that's moderation for you. <laughs> maybe. maybe it is, right? Okay, so this has been the Broken Clock Podcast on the Fu Network, FUNetwork.tv. If you want to support us, PayPal and Patreon are the ways to do it through that website. And Mouse, as usual, you have the final word. I have a quote from James Baldwin uh, in Notes of a Native Son, where he captures um, the issues with trying to perceive justice um, and the world accurately. It began to seem that one would have to hold in mind forever two ideas which seemed to be in opposition. The first idea was acceptance, the acceptance totally without rancor of life as it is, and men as they are. In light of this idea, it goes without saying that injustice is commonplace, but this did not mean that one could be complacent, for the second idea was of equal power, that one must never in one's own life accept these injustices as commonplace, but one must fight them with all of one's strength. <laughs>